Welcome to episode 82 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Jesse, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing great. This is the most holy day of the Christian calendar, and I'm just basking in the celebration of the resurrection. So I want to say a very happy Lord's Day to you. (laughs) You looked particularly separate and holy. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Today is, I mean, we get this high holy day once every seven days. It's pretty awesome. It is pretty awesome. I agree. So some some people call it Easter today. I don't know what that is. I don't understand it. I don't. I feel like Easter is every seven days, right? Yeah, something like that. I, I don't know. That don't that know. probably wasn't as funny as I hoped it would be, but <laughs> it made me laugh. Yes, it made me laugh as well. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Um, since the last time we asked that question, but <laughs> I'm curious about what you're affirming besides the Lord's Day. So I have a bunch of affirmations today. So I'm going to start off with this, the shortest one. So I started watching this TV show that I think might be the story of my life. It's called Alex Inc. Have you heard of this show? I know you've heard of it because I sent you something about it, but did you watch it? No, I haven't watched it yet. So it stars Zach Braff and a bunch of other people that you've never heard of. And uh, he starts a podcast company. So like the whole first episode is about like his decision to leave his career and um pursue full-time podcasting. So I'm announcing to, no, I'm just kidding. I'm not announcing anything, but it's funny because Ashley, Ashley and I were watching it and she looked over at me. She's like, don't you dare, (laughs) (laughs) but it's really good. I mean, it's, it's interesting and, and it's actually produced by Gimlet media, which is a big podcast company. So, um, and they make great shows. So I think probably there's probably going to be a good element of like realism in what it takes to run a podcast and to run a podcast company. So um, I'm excited to watch it. He sort of talks a lot about like storytelling and it's it's very interesting. That's kind of our jam. Yeah. What are you affirming? So I'm affirming this practice, which I'm trying to undertake. And I, in fair disclosure, I stole this from another great podcast called Invest Like the Best, which sounds lame, but it's not just about how you allocate your money. It's by a guy named Patrick O'Shaughnessy, and he's the CEO of a company. But he tweets every day two things that he learned. And this has started like a lot of people to follow him to do the same thing. I did see that. That's what I'm trying. And I want to encourage other people to do this too, because it's both really satisfying and incredibly humble, because it makes you realize... If you're the average person, you don't learn a lot of new stuff yeah, every day. It's true. So I, if you can follow me on Twitter and I'm trying to do this and it can be like anything that you've learned that day, even if it's ridiculous. So yesterday, I, the two things I tweeted was one, I heard this thing about driving defensively, that the best way to drive defensively is to pretend that somebody got up explicitly that morning and is out to try to kill you on, <laughs> and they're on the road. But you that don't would know do who it. it is. That would work. I just wouldn't go out. I mean, if that was the case for me, but. That's true. It does beg the question, what are you even doing? Yeah, why would you leave your house if you thought someone was going to kill you on the road? Exactly. But if you're in that situation, it's a great way to drive defensively. So that was one. And then the other thing was a super nerdy financial thing about forward range contracts. So I love this, though, because people that I've been following that do this, it's almost like I look forward to these tweets more than other tweets because I know they're going to be some random thing that is, is about that person and what they're experiencing in life. So I'm affirming tweeting about two things you've learned today. Try it. Nice. It's great exercise. Yeah, I'll have to get on that. I have to learn how to type in Greek, Greek though, because I've been memorizing Greek vocab like a fiend. But that would be really awesome, actually, if you were just like, here are two, two Greek vocab words I learned today. Yeah. I think that kind of be fun. It would be fun. So my second affirmation. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It just sounded like we were two giant nerds. Like, it didn't actually sound that fun. We were just both. It, really it, deadpan. It's awesome. Yes. I have to get into that, that habit would be of so it though, fun. because it's like, it's hard to like identify things you've learned <laughs> and you get into this. I like, I saw you do it the other day and I was like, what are two things I've learned today? And I was like, nothing. I've learned nothing today. So I'm sure that I learned something, but it was probably some nerdy shortcut in the scheduling system on my at work or something like that. 
But you know what? Part of the joy of this, I think, has been being more cognizant of when learning is happening for me. Yeah. So knowing that I want to put out there or I'm accountable to try to throw out two things keeps my mind engaged as to what I'm trying to take in as new information and where I'm trying to grow. So even though it sounds super lame, it's a really kind of interesting activity. Yeah. Yeah, it does sound fun. I'll have to give it a shot. So what else you got? So I am affirming our audience and specifically our international audience. So I was doing a little bit of, um, I don't know, introspective statistic mining this morning. I I don't know if that's a thing, but I was looking at our uh, podcast statistics and I try to only look at them once a week. But today I I dug in a little bit on our non-American audience, our non-United States of America audience. We have South American listeners that are just shutting off their show right now. But uh, (laughs) I discovered that apart from the United States of America, we have listeners in 55 countries internationally. I know. And our largest population is in the UK, which is not terribly surprising although what's the deal Canada Um, and specifically there's a town in England called Stockton on Tees where we've had a significant number of downloads from that uh, that town or I don't know what they call borough village hamlet is it a hamlet we are we are so hot in Stockton or Tees right now so if you are a listener from Stockton on Tees please call us and leave us a voicemail and explain to us why there's like this pocket of Reformed Brotherhood listeners. Uh, we would just love to hear from you. But we have listeners in Scotland, so I'm really glad I didn't try to do a Scottish accent because I would have alienated all of you. We have some listeners in Ireland. Um, there's a fairly large London contingency. So it's just it's just really cool to see that this brotherhood that we have been you know a part of and have been trying to start and trying to spread has cross literally crossed the globe at this point. So it's pretty cool. That's outstanding. So, and in light of that, I want to recommend a new show that I started listening to. And it's a new show period, but it's also obviously a new show to me. And I'm going to try to pronounce this, but you kind of almost have to have an Irish accent to pronounce it. It's called the Ecclesia cast. And it's, uh, it's three guys who live in Ireland who are, uh, doing a podcast and it's there. It didn't, the first two episodes were kind of like a random smattering of topics. There wasn't a central theme and maybe that's what they're going to do. But, um, it was just really good, just good reflection on what's going on in their culture and other things like that. So check it out. It's spelled E I R C L E S I a cast. Uh, you can get it on iTunes anywhere else. You can get podcasts. Love it. That was like a great free plug. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're doing great work and I'd love to see, I love to see podcasts that are beyond kind of like the standard, uh, like upper middle class white guys talking about theology. So I have no idea if these guys are upper middle class white guys in Ireland, but like just your standard, like two or three American dudes talking about, talking about theology and drinking beer. Like those are great, but we've got a thousand of them. So hearing some accents and some other voices from other parts of the world is, is pretty cool. I love that. That's great. Yeah. So I, I wasn't going to necessarily have a denial, but now I feel compelled because we got a big denial, big joint denial, which we is do. basically heresy what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. But I think of almost equal weight, given the season of the calendar we're in, is something that I need to deny. And that is going to be controversial. So are you ready for this? Let's do it. I'm denying against Cadbury cream eggs. Oh, man. Podcast over. How, how do you feel about that? Are you a Cadbury fan? Uh, I like Cadbury eggs, but I don't really like the cream eggs. So the thing about this is, I think if you think about a normal egg long enough, it's a little bit weird. I oh, mean, it's yeah. A, an egg is a weird thing. And so I think the Cadbury cream egg is equally weird because it's replicating something that's in the normal world really strange. And then it's doing it with all kinds of things that you don't even know what's in that bad boy. So yeah. all kinds of high fructose corn syrup and stuff. I know they're delicious. People are going to say they're delicious. That's fine. My wife loves Cadbury cream eggs. You can buy her friendship and loyalty in Cadbury cream eggs for sure. But I do think it's possible that they are the confectionery form of sin. There's just too much <laughs> going on in there. Yeah. They're too weird. Yeah. I feel like there's there's an element of like, if you were to just like take a regular egg and like bite into it, you'd probably throw up. But like right. somehow when you when it's a chocolate egg and it, you still have that same kind of like consistency inside as like an egg yolk, it, it's not you're not going to throw up. So I don't know why that is, but it's weird though, right? Like if you think it is about weird. In, unless like you're Rocky and you're trying to improve your boxing game, like maybe you throw back a couple of raw eggs. Anybody eating a raw egg normally, you'd be like, that's disgusting and weird. 
Yeah. But if we put it in chocolate and confection form with all the same looking elements suddenly, totally, totally yeah. fine. Here's what I've always wondered. Does the protein content of eggs reduce when you cook it? Because it <laughs> seems like you could just have a big plate of scrambled eggs and not be disgusting rather than like like trying Sorry. to choke back raw eggs on mass. I I didn't see that coming because you got so serious where you're like, here's what I've always wondered. And yeah. that's like a really specific question about eggs. I, I just, I've, you know, you see like the, it's the stereotypical, like Gaston from, from Beauty and the Beast. He eats 12 dozen raw eggs now that he's a man. And, and you're like, why raw eggs? Couldn't, couldn't you, I mean, couldn't you like scramble them or sunny side up or I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe the protein does break down it's pot it makes sense if it does i just don't know if it does but is there some reason why thing why like raw eggs somehow increase your muscle mass so they have like better protein and i don't know maybe that's the case someone should call and tell us listen we got questions somebody in england knows the answer to that question yeah it's true as a voicemail in your delightful accent yes so i have one last thing and i'm really excited about this and we just decided this right before the show but i'm super Super excited about this. So not oh, this only is, is today the Lord's Day, and also today is a day that some people call Easter, or if you're uh, really uh, Christian, you call it Resurrection Day instead. Uh, but it's also April Fool's Day. So uh, what we would like to do now, everybody, this is a secret, so don't tell Les and Tanner. But what I would like you to do is I would like you to call their voicemail on the Reform Pubcast, and the number is 772 772- Four zero five seven three two seven. That's seven seven two four zero five seven three two seven. But I want you to call and leave a voicemail, but pretend you're calling a different show. So maybe it's our show, maybe it's an like an NPR show or some show that doesn't exist. But call and leave a voicemail for a different show on their podcast line. So it's seven seven two four zero five seven three two seven. And when you do that. Uh, after this week, send us a tweet or an email letting us know you did that because I want to see what happens. I think it's going to be really funny. Or maybe they just won't play any of them and this is a big waste of time. But I want to I wanna prank the pubcast. So please help me prank the pubcast. But don't tell Les or Tanner. All right? that, that's got to be the deal. Shh. Shh. Be quiet about it. Secrets. We're hunting pubcasters. This is only going to end up funny for us. I, think. I know it's or or it's nothing's going to happen at all. Yeah, right. It, it is what it is, but I think it'll be great. I think it's worth a try. So Jesse, now let's pretend that there's a condition where we set up this situation for people to call the podcast. Now, did okay. did God know who would call the podcast <laughs> in a condition where we set it up like this? Best segue ever. <laughs> Best segue ever to our topic today. So I'm glad you brought that up, Tony, because what I wanted to talk about with you was this little, really simple concept called <laughs> middle knowledge. Yes. Yes. So preface for this, if you are a philosopher and you want to call us and tell us how um, terrible we represented this, then that's just a different world that didn't get actualized. Right. So just don't call us and tell us. I'm just kidding. If you want to call us and talk to us about how we messed it up, if we legitimately messed it up, then we would love the correction. Um, if it's just that we're not philosophers, so we can't possibly get it right, then just skip the phone call. But uh, Jesse yesterday was like, let's talk about middle knowledge. And I was like, let me read every book in my library. <laughs> so even if I wanted to do something for Easter, I was busy reading William Lane Craig and a bunch of thick, leathery tomes. You're welcome. Yes. And the reason I wanted to talk about this was because sometimes the road to heresy is just an exit off of orthodoxy. It doesn't mean you're necessarily having to drive in the opposite direction, although it is that, of course, as well. Yeah. And so this is one of those things I've been thinking about recently, where I think it does kind of get smuggled in to some of our thinking, sometimes just absentmindedly. But I thought it'd be good for us to, some might not understand what this concept is, or have never even heard of it. Yeah. So this can be the one thing you learn today. Yeah. And yeah. is, let's talk a little bit about, about middle knowledge. So let's get to like some, some technical definition stuff to even talk about what, what this means, where this came from. And basically where I think the best place to start is there's still so many harmful heresies and they become in vogue in various seasons. 
And a lot of those that are in vogue right now surround the doctrine of God and the doctrine of Christ. So yeah. we've been big proponents of making sure that we need to comprehend and defend theology proper or yeah. the doctrine of God. And one of those areas is the doctrine of the knowledge of God or his omniscience. And that's where we kind of enter into this idea of middle knowledge. So let's start with where, what middle knowledge is and, or maybe we should better start with like the, the knowledge that God has. Is that a fair place to start? Yeah. So I'm, uh, we can kind of break down, um, as you might assume from the name middle knowledge is there are basically three quote unquote kinds of knowledge that God has. But right. before we kind of break down and get into each of those, I'm just going to read from, uh, the second edition of, uh, William Lane Craig and JP Moreland's philosophical foundations for a Christian worldview. Uh, which was sent to me compliments of IVP. So thank you, IVP. And um, I'm just going to read from uh, his chapter. And it's interesting because even someone like William Lane Craig recognizes that this discussion belongs in the category of uh, theology proper. So right. we, when we talk about middle knowledge, sometimes people think about it like it's some auxiliary thing that just kind of gets tacked on. But when we're talking about God's knowledge, his modes of knowledge, different things like that, we're talking about God's very self and and the very essential makeup of who and what God is. So it's, it's very central to the Christian faith to understand how it is that God knows all things and what he knows, what he doesn't know, those kinds of things. So I'm just going to read, uh, this is on page 528. And it says, according to the counter-reformation theologian Louis Molina, or Louis Molina, logically prior to the divine decree to create the world, God possesses not only a knowledge of everything that could happen, natural knowledge, but also everything that would happen in any appropriately specified set of circumstances, middle knowledge. God's natural knowledge is his knowledge of all necessary truths. By means of it, God knows what is the full range of possible worlds. Um, God's mill. I skipped down a little bit. It says God's middle knowledge is his knowledge of all contingently true counterfactual propositions, including propositions about creaturely free actions. So that's, that's William Lane Craig, or I suppose it, it might be JP Moreland or some combination of the two, but that's from William Lane Craig's book. So, so that is how a person who holds to the view of Molinism, which comes from that Jesuit philosopher, Louis Molina holds to a view of Molinism, which rests on this idea of mental knowledge. That's how he describes it. So we want to always, just a side note, anytime we're talking about a view we disagree with, we want to do our best to represent it fairly. And the right. best way to represent it fairly is to let the people who hold that view speak in their own voice. So we always try to quote from sources um, that we disagree with rather than just summarizing. We're going to do some summarizing too, but there it is. Um, like I said, that's Philosophical Foundations of Christian Worldview second edition, and it is page 528. And he goes on through the rest of that chapter to explain it more. So Molinism is going to basically set forth these three types of knowledge, which you said, natural, middle, and free. So let's talk about like each of those really briefly. So here's how I would understand this idea of natural knowledge. The way I understand it is it's the knowledge of matters such as like truths of math mathematics, like zero factorial is one and two plus two is four. It's also a knowledge of truth, such as, you know, the fact that the whole is greater than the part or no circle can be a square. Right. So God's necessary knowledge also includes his knowledge of all possibilities, such right. as all possible people, the possible lives they could lead, the whole range of possible worlds. These are known to God immediately and intuitively. Right. Is that fair? Yeah. And, and the reason, um, at least as far as I've understood it, the reason it's called natural knowledge is because it's actually God's knowledge of himself. And so exactly. the only thing that constrains the range of possible worlds and possible worlds is a weird philosophical way to talk about it. But the only thing another, probably a more um, properly reformed way to talk about it would be to say the only thing that constrains God's freedom in creating the, the range of possible things God could have done is his own nature. So God cannot create a square that has six sides because that is an inconsistency. And when we push that back into why couldn't God create an inconsistency is because it would require God to lie in order to do so. So he right. would have to point at an object and say, that's a square, which by definition means that's an object that has four sides. But he would also have to say that object has six sides and an object that has six sides can't possibly be a square. So right. he also couldn't create a world where um, not worshiping God was right, was good, 
right? So God is only constrained by his own nature and character in terms of what he could do. So when we're talking about natural knowledge, that's what we're talking about. So that, as Jesse said, that includes not only the range of worlds that the, the world that God will create, um, which is later on described as free knowledge. It includes all of the possibilities of what God had in front of him in terms of things he could have done that were consistent with his nature. And as you can imagine, that range is infinite because God is infinite. So right. God could always have created one more person or one more star or one uh, one more type of thing that he didn't create, some other some other concept or entity that he didn't create. He could always do more than he did. So the the natural knowledge is an infinite knowledge because God is an infinite creator. And that's why we say it's intuitive as well. I like how you describe that because I think there's a beauty in understanding that you just took an example that was all geometric, but said that the reason why geometry is this way is because of God's character. Right. So it, by saying it's intuitive, we mean that it's natural in the sense that it needs no external or exogenous explanation. It does not need to be taught. It is automatically known and it is automatically known in this way because it reflects the character of the one who is doing the knowing. Yeah. So there's something beautiful about that. Like this is what we talk about how, why why Christianity is so amazingly glorious is because the root and the tail all are drawn together. We go from there being no such thing as a six-sided square because God is good. Right. That's an amazing connection, but it's right. a true connection. Yeah. So so the second piece would be free knowledge. So I'll let you hit that bad boy up first, and then I'll give you my kind of synopsis. Yeah. So I'm going to let uh, Gerhardus Voss read this for us. Uh, it's from volume one of his dogmatics on page 17. And it says, the object of free knowledge are all actual things outside God. That is, that actually have been, still are, or will be. It is called free because the knowledge of these things as existing depends on God's omnipotent decree and was by no means an eternal necessity. So the point of that is that if God's knowledge of himself, his natural or necessary knowledge is necessary, means it could never be otherwise. So God could never know, could never have natural knowledge of some other state of affairs because God is who God is. All that's in God is God, and that can never change. So his necessary natural knowledge of himself is immutable, permanent, and could never be otherwise. His free knowledge, however, is basically the knowledge that God has of what he will do or the world he will create. So he he has a whole range of possible creations that he could have chosen to do, and he freely chooses to create one of those one of those worlds. And so his no- free knowledge is the knowledge of that world which he actually created according to his will. So much of this sounds crazy technical, and there's a part of it is, but really what these guys are talking about is they're trying to articulate that which is obvious, but at a deeper level. So God's free knowledge is his knowledge of his decree, which you said. So that is in his wisdom, the stuff that God freely and unchangeably ordained to come to pass. Right. So that which God decrees is obviously the subset of all the possibilities that we talked about before that are known to him. So his decree also has its source solely in his mind and will. So we start with the natural, all the possibilities, then we get to free knowledge where God, by a free act, is able to know what he knows absolutely. I know that sounds crazy, but what yeah. we're trying to say is we're, we're kind of narrowing down. That is, this is, these are two actually distinct types of knowledge. They aren't definitions without distinction. Right. And so without knowing that there is this natural and free knowledge, it makes no sense to talk about the middle. But these guys, these Jesuit dudes, were like, and for matters we'll probably get into, they wanted to reconcile different parts of scripture or reconcile different parts of libertarian free will. And so what they ended up with is we need some kind of middle ground. We need like the Oreo cream inside the sandwich to make this all work. Yeah. And hence we ended up with middle knowledge. So how would you describe middle knowledge? Yeah. So um, I would actually just push back against one thing that you just said is how in, dare you in my understanding of how this came about scripture had nothing to do with it. So, um, well, that's fair. They weren't trying necessarily to reconcile scripture and scripture, at least not in a direct sense. It's not like they had verse A and verse B and they were trying to say, well, how do these things work? They were, if I'm trying to be charitable, which I'm hoping to be, they were trying to say, we hold this to be true because of the Bible and we hold this to be true because of the Bible. So what do we do? So I'm going to read again from Voss. It's on the following page. Um, This is um, in, I think it's chapter one. Uh, but it's on page 18. I would assume it's chapter one. Otherwise, chapter one is really short. Um, it says, so what is so-called middle knowledge? 
And the answer he gives is, it is something that Jesuits, Lutherans, and Remonstrants, or Arminians, introduce between necessary and free knowledge. By this is meant the knowledge that God possesses of certain things that would occur independently of God by the free determination of human will, provided that certain conditions would be fulfilled beforehand. For example, God gives to some his word and the Holy Spirit, but not to others. We conclude from this his omnipotence in granting the means of grace. No, the proponent of middle knowledge responds, God knew which persons would convert themselves by a free determination of will when these means are presented to them, and therefore brings these means only to them. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm confused and I'm reading it off the page. So, well, But here's, here's the thing about um, middle <clears throat> knowledge is I think actually once we get into talking about what the idea is behind it, this actually will seem more familiar to people because yes. of the three, it's the one that probably we've heard in, at various points in our lives. So yes. how I would describe it is like this. Given a whole array of possible worlds that God knows, given worlds in which men and women were free in this relevant indeterministic sense, that is that God is not superimposing something upon them, a choice. God has knowledge of all such possible outcomes. So if placed in one set of circumstances, God knows what Jesse would freely choose. If placed in another set of circumstances, God knows what I would also freely choose. So this is true for all possible people on all possible circumstances. So God has this middle knowledge by inspection of all the possibilities that the free will of each person might choose, but he doesn't know, I'm trying to be charitable too, he doesn't know what the end result is going to be. That is, the person actually has the free will to make the choice, but God knows given all these circumstances what that choice will actually be. Yeah. And I think it's important too to to remember that... um, Molinism, which originally started with the Jesuits, with Louis Molina, um, is not a position that has like a denomination or a a particular body. So trying to even pin down what, quote, the Molinist or the, you know, the middle knowledge view is can be difficult because there are some kind of hardcore philosophical Molinists that look at William Lane Craig's articulation of Molinism and say he hasn't got it right. And then William Lane Craig will look at some other people and say, well, no, they don't have it right. So um, William Lane Craig, for example, would say, no, God knows what the outcome is because he chooses which world to actualize. And so he does know exhaustively what the outcome is. Um, and he actually determines the outcome because he determines which of the free worlds he will create. So I just want to explain this. This is a diagram. I'm not going to try to explain a diagram, but this is a really helpful way to think about it. And, and I actually had this conversation with kind of a, a Craigite, and he confirmed that this is uh, an accurate way to think about it. So if you if you think about God as coming up to a closet and God's trying to choose which shirt to wear, right? God has a, a range of possible shirts. That's the all of the closets, all of the shirts in the closet are possible worlds that God could create. So God's trying to choose which shirt to wear. Right. And so he then says, I'm only going to choose from the orange shirts. So he takes this this whole range and he shrinks it down to a specific set. And in Molinism, the orange shirts are the worlds where creatures make free decisions. So there's possible worlds where creatures don't make free decisions. They make entirely determined decisions. And then there's worlds where they make free decisions. So God has shrunken his choice down, his range of options, voluntarily down to the orange shirts. And then he reaches into the closet and he picks a particular orange shirt. And he says, this is the one I'm going to pick. And so that's the actual world that he's picked. So the whole closet is God's natural knowledge. He knows all of the possible shirts he's going to wear. Right. The range of what's called feasible shirts or feasible worlds, that's his middle knowledge, his knowledge of the orange shirts, the, the worlds that have free will in them. And then his free knowledge is the actual shirt he picks, the actual world he chooses to actualize. Does that help make sense? Yeah, I'm down with that. I've never heard that example before, but I think that that's, that's pretty fair. I mean, what I was kind of trying to drive at before, because I definitely misspoke by trying to say like, there, this doesn't harmonize scripture. It's, I should have said, it's probably, this kind of came about, at least as I understand it, it was this middle knowledge, the third type, because we should say that the first two, natural and free, are going to basically be affirmed by orthodoxy, right? Right. It's the middle that we get into problem. And many would argue, probably we would too, that the middle is like a non-term. Like what is left? 
right. really to know after that. But the invention, and I'm just going to say it that way, the invention of middle knowledge was really tailored to specifically to harmonize God's sovereignty and libertarian free choice and divine grace and evil. So you have those two dudes which you already spoke about, the, some of the Jesuit theologians that kind of brought about this idea. But you also have like Arminius, who basically borrowed or adopted the device in his Protestant account of divine foreknowledge and human free choice. So even though at the extreme, some may say like, yeah, I'm definitely not down with that. This concept is kind of woven in kind of a lot of different parts of theology. Yeah. It's been borrowed kind of part and parcel. So it, it's worth talking about, or at least like being able to identify and label. And many times this is the piece that harmonizes two different doctrines that we really want to hold to. Like we want to give God the primary role in a sovereign kind of superintending will, but we don't want to, for whatever reason, eliminate free choice when it comes to things like salvation. And so what we end up with is this kind of weird middle ground, pun intended. Yeah. And and that's... So I'm just going to throw it out there. I'm not going to beat her on the bush. Let's do it. There are, it there. there are Calvinists who think that they can also be Molinists. Yes. That is ridiculous. Yes. And the agreed. reason that that is ridiculous is because you would have to be saying that the founder of Molinism or the founder of middle knowledge is an idiot. Now, I'm happy saying that the founder of Molinism is an idiot, <laughs> but the reason I say that is because Louis Molina specifically and explicitly was articulating this view to counteract the Calvinists and the Jansenists. And the right. Jansenists were a group within the Catholic Church who said, you know, that Calvin guy is not, not really that far off. And so Louis Molina is saying, no, no, this middle knowledge, this actually undercuts Calvinism. So if you're a Calvinist who thinks you can be a Molinist, you're not. You're either not a Molinist or you're not a Calvinist. So let's just get that out of the way. That's, that's not a discussion we have to have. Uh, I'm glad we got that off. We our chests. can have it. We can have it a different time if you want, or if you want to call someone wants to call in and, and refute that. But, um, it, you hear it a lot that, oh yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a Molinist Calvinist. Well, no, you're not. You're either a Molinist right. or you're a Calvinist, or maybe you're not either. And you're actually probably an Arminian, but, uh, the two are not compatible. And I just want to read, and then we can move on, but I want to read from, um, the Westminster confession chapter three. And this is specifically a response to Molinism as far as I understand it. And it's three, two, it says, although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future or as that which would come a pass upon such conditions. And what's happening there is they're probably responding to uh, Arminius's use of middle knowledge. But what they're saying is that, no, it's not about God looking into the future. And that's, I think this is where we're going to probably spend most of the rest of our time is Molinism undercuts God's self-sufficient knowledge, right? Molinism makes it so God has to have knowledge that comes from somewhere else. Right. It comes from outside of himself. And they have all sorts of philosophical ways to try to get around that and to try to explain it. But I've never heard one that is co- I've found to be coherent or compelling at all. So um, just stop saying it. If you're a Calvinist, stop saying it. Stop trying to argue for it. Just pick one side or the other, right? Either be a Molinist or be a Calvinist, but stop this silliness. Pick a jersey. Can I hit that nail too? Yes. Because I really want to now. Pound it. So- I think this has to do with, again, understanding that you can exit the orthodoxy highway and yes. really get yourself into trouble really quickly, as opposed to thinking that you, if you turn the car around, you'll know for sure because you're going against traffic. So to me, this means that if you are a Calvinist who denies the possibility of a libertarian free will for theological reasons, which many would do, then you can't by definition combine your Calvinism with middle knowledge. Middle knowledge is not knowledge God has about what causally determined creatures would do when placed in various circumstances. Right. That's Calvinism. Yep. Exactly. Middle knowledge is only knowledge of what libertarian free creatures would do. And these creatures are not causally determined by God's will. Exactly. So the only way that one could ever hold the middle knowledge is by affirming the possibility of creatures having libertarian free will. So to your point, pick a Jersey. Yeah. You're, and that's what I'm a little bit afraid of is sometimes this stuff gets kind of like smuggled in and we're unknowingly basically saying, so supporting other D ideas that are the underpinnings of this particular philosophy without even realizing that we're doing that. 
Now that happens in all areas of life. So it's not like we shouldn't commit to one thing because we're afraid that we might be inadvertently affirming something else we disbelieve. But this is why it's good to try to find two things you learn every day so you can try to understand better what it is that you actually believe. So I'm with you. Most people are going to say libertarian free will, at least from a reform perspective, is nonsensical. And therefore, by the same definition and extension, so also is middle knowledge. So we've probably beat that thing to death. Yeah, but it needs to be beat to death because it's something that I hear all, all the time. Even in places like the Reform Pub, we, we, have to, we have to kick people out on a fairly regular basis for trying to claim that Molinism and um, Calvinism are compatible. And, really? And arguing... <coughs> that really, well, that got really me choked you up. Yeah, it got me choked up. Um, arguing, essentially arguing against Calvinism in an attempt to make Molinism palatable to Calvinists. And they don't realize they're doing it. And that's, that's the dangerous part is... I don't know if you... Um, have ever had it happen where, where you you're driving and this this on ramp off ramp analogy that you're working with is really good, because there are places in Boston where you'll you'll take one ramp, right? You you exit the freeway, right. and then that ramp splits to both directions you want to go. Yes, yeah. And, and you get on the wrong one, and you may not know it for a long time until all of a sudden it loops around and you're going the opposite direction. Right. And that's exactly what happens here, is that you think about this and you're like, oh yeah, this sounds great. I mean, God still has sovereign because he still chooses which world actually comes to pass. And you know he knows all these things before creation, so his om- omniscience is preserved. And, and all of a sudden you're like, but wait a second, he only knows what free creatures will do because he looks forward and sees it. Wait a second. Right. How, how is it that his knowledge of the creation, <laughs> the, the, the acts of free creatures is prior to his decree? And then all right. of a sudden you're like, oh, I guess I'm not a Calvinist anymore. Right. And everybody that I know who has followed a trajectory where they try to synthesize Molinism and Calvinism, everyone that I know has ended up not a Calvinist. And now hmm. don't don't hear me saying that like not being a Calvinist is the worst thing in the world. Obviously we think reformed theology is the truth. We think it's the most faithful articulation of scripture. Um but I'm gonna have a bigger problem with someone who ends up a Molinist in terms of um their ultimate status as a Christian and in terms of the purity and the efficacy of their theology than I would a Lutheran or a um even just like a general evangelical who doesn't really have a position because Molinism middle knowledge strikes at the very heart of theology proper. And so you end up with a different God because the God that you're worshiping is not a God who decrees all things. He's a God who played to quote William Lane Craig to who plays the hand dealt to him by free creatures, by the free choices of creatures. Now, right. There are a lot of Molinists, and this is what I mean when I say Molinists will all, it's a, it's a wide range. There's a lot of Molinists who just facepalm hearing William Lane Craig say that. But he has defended his use of that analogy time and time again. And he literally is saying that God is constrained. God, God can only do what free creatures let him do if he wants to create a world where freedom is, exists because of the commitment to libertarian free will. God cannot determine the actions of creatures, the free actions of creatures, because that's how freedom works for him. So right. I, I really can't emphasize it enough is this is a really dangerous theology. It is. And in the middle of that process, though, as you were saying, where you've kind of gone off the road a little bit, you're thinking, oh, so this is what happened with Pharaoh. Suddenly that all makes a lot of sense. Exactly. And then when you pull it out further, I, I like what you said. Something struck me about whether when we come to difficult conversations, philosophical arguments, and wrestling through these doctrines, whether we're concerned with preservation of God's character or praise of God's character. Right. And this type of thing always puts me a little bit on edge because it seems like what we're trying to do is we just want to have our cake and eat it too. And who doesn't want to? I get that. But that, I think, is a good warning sign sometimes. Like, that's the flag on the play to say, be careful that you might merely be trying to synthesize things because you want to preserve something that you know is true, but all you're doing is trying to preserve it so that you might get acquiescence to something that you think should be true because it comports with your feelings of fairness or some kind of strange form of human temporal justice. So it is really dangerous. And it, like I said, I think it's like hiding. It's in the corners. This is the thing in the shadow. And it only comes out once you kind of push and push further, push out on the, the logistics of this. I mean, 
why so if this if you've run into this like in the pub or other places like why do you think it is so prevalent and why is it because isn't it really ironic that somebody would say would start like a, a large you know like theoretical argument of a movement forward on this concept to prove why it can be inherently calvinist but at the same time they're actually giving up the ground that they're standing on yeah. you know yeah i mean i i think um i think it depends on which angle you're coming from so I think that people who hold to Molinism, um, who hold to this middle knowledge view, I think they're doing it with the best intentions, right? It, it's a it's a straightforward attempt to preserve human freedom and to um, to account for the problem of evil. So those are the kind of the two philosophical poles that it's trying to maintain and and still be faithful to the clear teaching of Scripture that God is sovereign over all events. The problem is that it, as you said, it it kicks out its own feet because right. it ends up, as I said, it ends up reducing God to no longer being sovereign, but being at the mercy of the creatures that he's, and, and it doesn't surprise us, right? We've talked about it on, when we talked about divine sovereignty, we talked about how um, either creatures are um, conformed to God's will or God is conformed to creatures' wills. Those are the right. only options. Um, and so we as as Christians, as Calvinists, we say, well, no, this clear teaching of Scripture is that God is supreme, and so all things are conformable and agreeable to his will. Well, the, the Molinists and the Arminians and some Lutherans um, and most Roman Catholics are going to end up in a position where they say, well, no, uh, at the end of the day, there are some things that God wills and desires that do not occur. And so I don't know why they object to us saying that they have a God who's conformed to the will of creatures because they say it. They say that, well, God wants to save you, but you're too stubborn. And so so God's will can't be done and ultimately you get your will. Well, that's the same thing as what I just said, but you're objecting to it. So the other flip side of it is the reason that I think um, some people who are Molinists try to articulate it such that it is agreeable to Calvinism is because they see an in. They see a way that they can kind of get in the door and convince some people of what they want and try to pull some pull the Calvinists back from what they see to be an error. So they're wanting to say, yeah, yeah, God's sovereignty. We're both, we both agree on God's sovereignty. We're alive. But, you know, you can't account for human freedom. So why don't you just just take this one little step my direction and then you can account for human freedom while maintaining your zeal for God's sovereignty. Right. Um, so it's, it's a, I think it's a tactic. And when I say tactic, I don't mean it's like some nefarious scheme. We all do things to try to convince other peoples of our view, right? A very right. common, uh, a very common Calvinist tactic is to demonstrate that everybody limits the atonement in some way and then demonstrate that the way we limit the atonement is logical and consistent with the Bible. So it's not a nefarious scheme. It's not anything like that, but it is an attempt to convince you not to be a Calvinist anymore. So there's a little bit of deception. I think when they say, well, no, you can be a Calvinist and a Molinist. Even they recognize that you're going to have to give something up that's central to what it means to be a Calvinist in order to be a Molinist. Right. I, I see a lot of this dependent on what I would say is faulty logic and not biblical truth, that that's like the main thrust for moving this argument forward. So the, the Millennium logician, I think, normally would argue that an action must first occur before it can be true. So God right. then cannot know anything in this manner as true and absolute unless it has occurred first. That's right. the outworkings. I'd say that's like the standard default normative position. So the free acts of men cannot be true acts until they're actually acted. Does that make sense? Right, yeah. Like, I think that's what they would say. So God cannot know something as true until men in time act out their free choices. Then that that becomes knowledge that's true for God. So in our temporal state, if I'm at the, if, well, let's say my wife is going to go to the grocery store and she's describing a particular aisle to me, like the aisle with organic chocolate. I don't know. I'm trying to think of something like really specific and weird. I don't know what else can you buy that's weird that's organic. There's all sorts of things you can buy that's okay, weird and so organic. You know that every, does everybody know? Okay, so here's here's a good example. If you know that weird aisle, if if what I'm saying makes sense to you, it's probably because that knowledge is known to you and is true because you've actually experienced it. Right. So in a sense, for me to say like, yeah, I know that aisle, that is true because it has been actually actualized in a sense. Right. So that's what they're saying. 
So God then becomes dependent on the acts of men instead of on his own eternal decrees. I think that's like the major punching point right there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. It has to be that way. So I'm sure there's some listening or maybe not, but that would say you guys are being like really extreme. (laughs) Like you're, you're pulling this out to an extreme degree, but I don't think we are because like you said, one must trump the other. And the reason why I think this is faulty logic is when we don't find this, this logical thread in the Bible. And we're also, I think, trying to apply some kind of human logic, our understanding of what it means to know something on God and all of our knowledge mostly is experiential or it is learned, or is it exogenous? Right. So I think this is just bad logic. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. And, and that, that's exactly it is. Um, they want to say, at one point, they explicitly include the fact that the free decision of creatures is logically prior to the decree of God to create. Right. So the free decision of creatures has to be independent from the decree of God, because it's, that's built into their system. But then once they get there and you say, so where, so, so God has to learn about the free decisions of creatures because he doesn't decree them. They go, oh, well, no, he, he obviously, he knows about them. Like he, he, they, they, that's part of his knowledge and he always has that knowledge, but you say, well, but where does that knowledge come from? Because on, on, on the Calvinist view and the historic Orthodox Christian view, right before, um, before Molina, there really wasn't this middle knowledge. Um, there was some, you know, Origen had some kind of squirrely things. There was a couple people throughout church history that had something sort of like it. But Molina was really the first to really articulate this. Before that, there was necessary knowledge, which was God's knowledge of himself and all of the possibilities that that entails. And then there was free knowledge, right? All right. of those come from God. All of those start with God and his Natural knowledge of himself is prior to his decree because it's knowledge of himself and he has to be logically prior to his decree and his knowledge of himself is because his knowledge of himself is in God and therefore is God because of divine right. simplicity. Inherent. Yep. All right. And then free knowledge is his decree. It's his knowledge of what he decrees. So, so prior to this, there was no concept of God, no Christian concept of God having knowledge that was independent from either a necessary truth or a decree of God. And it was with Melina that you have the entrance of some knowledge in God that is not a result of God directly. It's not a result of God's nature and it's not a result of God's decree. So it has to be the result of the free creature. Right. So I really don't think that we're misrepresenting them when we say the knowledge of free creatures has to come from free creatures. Now, yes, God decrees to this is where it, the logic piece of it falls apart for me. And maybe I'm just not astute of enough of a philosopher, but I don't understand how you can logically say that God's God's knowledge of the result of the decree is logically prior to the decree itself. I don't understand how that can happen, but that's that's how they try to tie everything up and resolve it. Is the decree to create causes the the free creatures who then caused his knowledge, which comes prior to his knowledge of the decree. So it's it's this weird like circular reference that I don't I don't quite understand how they I, get there. I don't get it either, and I get concerned. So there's a difference between self-referring and circular reference, right? And I think this this the latter is a problem logically and uh, in in all kinds of thinking. So yeah. to me, yeah, it's like a circular error in Excel sheet. You know, it 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 it's yeah, it, it doesn't make any sense, and that's where I think it's it's based mainly on what we can do by trying to order our argumentation versus what the scripture says, because there's something like inherently unsatisfying and also kind of against the biblical explanation of God's character by trying to bring in middle knowledge. It just does not comport. We do not see that either explicitly or implicitly in the scriptures as an example of who God is and how he acts. So like time forbids us from going to this now, but like Matthew chapter 11, I know there's a lot to talk about that in terms of, is that being an example of Molinism? But, but all we're talking about is that God in his sovereignty, in his good pleasure, he does hide knowledge from some and he reveals right. the same hidden knowledge to others. So the Bible does not speak about God not knowing anything until man does something, but there's a sense that he already knows it but he just hasn't revealed it. If he, It's his choice to reveal that. And his free knowledge is his free choice to bring about that which he wills. So I think you're right. At the end of the day, what we end up doing is we undercut a lot of God's sovereignty. We undercut something about his character. We undercut something about the beauty of the world that he's created. 
and why he's created that thing. Yeah. And as you and I were talking beforehand when we covered this, it got me thinking about how we even look at the life of Christ. Yeah. And if we bring middle knowledge into the understanding of even the crucifixion, all the details, all the circumstances that surrounded that, then I think we're prone at times to look when Jesus is being punished, when he's being scourged, when he's being belittled by Pilate and say, I feel so sorry for Jesus. Like, we shouldn't feel sorry for Jesus. We should feel thankful that there is a, a Savior who volitionally, by God's superintending will and divine plan, undertook all these things with perfect foreknowledge so that he might make us forgiven. We don't need to feel sorry about that. Yeah, And and I think we have a tendency to sometimes feel sorry about it. And I think that tendency comes from this idea of just feeling like, isn't isn't this too bad that all this stuff is happening? And that's not the way we should look at it. Yeah. Just to not leave people hanging, I want to read question 57 from uh, Voss. It says, is not such middle knowledge taught in Matthew 11, 22 through 23? And the answer is no. <laughs> he goes on to explain why, but he just says, no, it's not. It's really not. So, and, and you just said something that I think um, uh, this may be a breakthrough. So I don't, I don't know if there's a light bulb that I can have go off over my head. But what you just said really, really clicked for me is, so Jesus Christ, according to his human nature, in uh, William Lane Craig's view, in Molini's view, is a free creature, right? Right. So. That means that God had counterfactual knowledge of Jesus sinning. Right. Because Jesus, if he's a free creature, could have chosen not to obey the Father's will. So that puts us in this ridiculous, just blasphemous, straight out blasphemous position to say that the Father knew the true counterfactual of Mm -hmm. Christ's sin. I don't, I don't know what to do with that. I, I, I'm like literally aghast. I've never yeah. encountered, I've never thought of that before. And maybe, maybe that's something I need to try floating out there the next time I'm arguing with a Molinist. But th- this is the thing is this kind of um, sort of crazy philosophical speculation puts us in really weird spots like that. Ex- exactly. Is now the Molinist is, ne- is, is forced to affirm that God knew about the possible world where Jesus sinned. Yes. And yes. Here's the thing: is that there are a lot of uh, there are some Calvinists who would say that Christ was not impeccable, that he could have sinned, and so they're saying God knew a possible world where Christ right, that, sinned. That's middle knowledge, and that's exactly where we run into the problem: is exactly. that we have now postulated a situation where God knows all of these things, and some of them are. Um, downright blasphemous and ungodly to even consider. Right. And so now we're saying that God is considering something blasphemous and ungodly. So not only do we have Christ sinning, we have the father sinning against himself. Yes. Now, now we are lost in our sins. We have, yes. a, if that's the case, we have an evil God. There's an evil creator out there who not only contemplates the good, but he contemplates and knows and if he knows the evil, the evil is part of him because his knowledge is part of him. So we have to be really careful yeah, that that's these well threads don't draw us away to something that we shouldn't. And here's that tension between the Molinists basically trying to bring together this philosophical concept in the scriptures. So they would, I am assume, would affirm, you know, all of Hebrews, understanding that we have a great high priest who is just like us in every way yet did not sin. So if that's true and they affirm libertarian free will, then Jesus did have libertarian free will, right. free will, then there would be, to your point, a counterfactual world in which he could have and would have sinned. Right. And so now we've, we've just opened up like this is a rabbit hole of epic proportion. Yep. Absolutely. Wow. We just went there in like less than 60 minutes. I know. I, I'm actually kind of like, I'm out of breath because I've never, every once in a while you have one of those moments where you like encounter a, a thought that you have never thought before. And it's like, Whoa, it kind of kicks you in the face a little bit. Yeah, put that on Twitter for today. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll leave that for a day that's not the Lord's day. We'll, we'll save my theological fight picking for another day. So I wanted to finish up with one last area that I think we need to emphasize. Um, there are Protestants. We'll, we'll go beyond kind of the, the uh, insane Calvinists that want to pretend to be Molinists or the insane Molinists that want to pretend to be Calvinists out into the broader Protestant world. So Lutherans, Arminians, um, Anglicans, right? Um, 
Molinism was formulated to preserve the theology of semi-Pelagianism. Right. right? And semi-Pelagianism, yeah, more or less, is the idea that man fell, but not all the way. So it, it preserves an element within man that is not, not fallen as a result of sin and is able to then respond to God in, in their own strength, under their own will. And so Molinism is formulated to preserve that element that Protestants across the board would claim to reject, right? If you have a Lutheran that, that is called a semi-Pelagian, they're going to be offended, right? In an Arminian who ostensibly is semi-Pelagian, depending on who you talk to, is going to be offended, and rightfully so, because it's not enough to reject full-on Pelagianism, which is the idea that there was no consequence in terms of man's makeup or nature because of the fall, except a bad example that we follow. Right. You have to also reject semi-Pelagianism. And so semi-Pelagianism, or if you're being, uh, if they wanted to be a little bit less straightforward about it, they would call it semi-Augustinianism. That was accepted in the Roman Catholic Church during the Counter-Reformation and ultimately was embraced as the formal position, right? But Thomas Aquinas, Augustine, all of these people that you think of as like hallmarks of Roman Catholic theology, Bernard de Clairvaux, all these different people would have absolutely gone crazy at that idea. So the fact that this theology was formulated to preserve a doctrine that we universally as Protestants reject should tell you something about whether or not Protestants can properly hold this. William Lane Craig does not think that he's a semi-Pelagian, but the God that he is talking about looks forward in time and sees a creature who was unaided or uncaused by grace choosing God, and then God then responds to that and issues grace. So right. the decision of the creature is unaided by grace. So the, the grace is logically after the decision. So William Lane Craig, others who hold this view, they hold a semi, semi-Pelagian anthropology, but they would reject that semi-Pelagianism if, if you confronted them with it. So that should just tell us that you can't be a consistent Protestant and affirm sola gratia and affirm sola fide and affirm sola scriptura because this isn't found in the Bible. You can't affirm those and hold Molinism. It's not logically possible. Right. That's well said. And, and I think the reason why this is so great to articulate and just to bring back to the top of mind is that some people don't even realize that they hold those particular viewpoints. Right. They've never heard the label semi-Pelagian. Right. They, they don't understand. They just have a sense that there should be something I bring and something that God brings. So being able to think about these things helps us as we converse lovingly with people to be able to not necessarily find the point of entry and be like, aha, I got you. You're right. semi-Pelagian. Let me tell you what that is but more of recognizing that viewpoint and then being able to speak some truth into that either all at once or through time, hopefully. Right. Yeah. So it's being able, it's almost like when we do these conversations, I get pumped up because it's like we're being equipped by the power of the Holy spirit to be, I don't want to say like spiritual doctors. I think that's too strong. Like spiritual nurses or midwives. Maybe that's getting weird. Medics. Medics. Yeah. yeah. That's a, that's a great way. Like yeah. First medics, responders. Like EMTs in some ways, like to be able to help and identify. And sometimes we're the sick one. Medics get ill as well. And we need a brother or sister to come alongside us. But it's really super important that we get that medical training over and over again so that we can recognize, diagnose. And sometimes we diagnose it in our own lives. So it's, it's not just, we shouldn't, in other words, like the best part of theology is not learning theology so you can teach somebody else. It's learning theology so you can teach it to yourself and live in that way. And then in the living, it'll be doing the teaching as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, and that reminds me, I can't find who said it. I'm actually seeing it quoted by Catholics, which is weird. But um, there's an, an old saying that the church is not a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. And that's the truth. And and I like what you're saying is that learning theology and learning this kind of theology, you might, you might say that what we're doing today is polemic theology, where we're digesting uh, a view that we disagree with. We're trying to accurately represent it and understand it. And then we're trying to talk about how do we overcome it is you're going to run into people out there who hold this stuff, whether, whether right. they know it or not. Um, the average, I would, I would venture to say the average evangelical that you're going to run into in a non-denominational church is going to affirm in more or less ways the adage that God helps those who help themselves. Right. And that is like a perfect example 
an articulation of semi-Pelagianism. Yes. The idea that like, well, you know, we, God, God does most of the work, but we got to come to him. We got to come to him and, you know, we got to trust him. And then if we trust him, he's going to save us. Well, that sounds like it makes a lot of sense until you realize that you have to deny that man is truly, totally fallen in order for that to work. And so we come to these people and we say to them, do you realize that your view that you're articulating means that there has to be some part of you that's not tainted by sin? And they right. might go, no, 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 that's not it. But now you have the, you have the means to articulate it. And then you can go back and say, well, did you know that in the history of the church, there's this view called semi-Pelagianism that's saying exactly what you have. And all Christians everywhere, e- even Roman Catholics for the most part, would say semi-Pelagianism is not a great idea. Right. Now you've got a lot of a lot of good ways to broach that subject. And it's because you took the time to try to study a difficult topic like middle knowledge. Otherwise, you may not have even recognized that there was a problem when someone says, yeah, well, I think that God, I think that God just knows all of the different things we could do. And, and you know, he knows, he knows who would be saved. And so, or he knows who, who would, would follow him. And so he, he sends special grace to make sure that those people who would choose him are given what they need to make that decision. Well, right. that's, that's Molinism. That's exactly, that's not good. So take the time to study this stuff. It's hard stuff. It's really difficult. I'm sure that I've made missteps in articulating it. Um, just a couple quick resources. Um, volume one of institutes, um, of the Atlantic theology by Francis Turretin. Um, it's question, it looks like around question 13. Um, and it's, that starts around two twelve. That's where, where Turretin talks about, um, he talks a lot about the different kinds of knowledge and why Turretin particularly is helpful on this is that the Jesuits were a scholastic order. So they followed the standard scholastic methodology and um, Turretin was also a scholastic. He was trained in the same way of thinking. And so he's articulating answers that respond to this scholastic theology in scholastic terms. So he's really helpful. Um, Bavink is really helpful. And then again, I wrote from Voss, who I think is probably the most helpful out of all of them, just because it's really straightforward and really simple. Um, Voss has this really great way of articulating things in kind of an easy to digest version. Turton is great. His resources in the Institute there is, is fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I think it's helpful to remember too, that when we're conversing with others, the instinct is right. So this instinct that says it can't possibly be that God would do all this on my behalf without me doing anything. That's what makes grace so scandalous. Yeah. Yeah. That's the beauty of it. So there is a beauty that we strip away. We try to, you know, take the varnish off, so to speak, by making it seem like, well, isn't it helpful that I come with my open hands, that I put up my arms to receive the gift? That's not what we find in the scriptures at all. So you're, you're right. That was well said. So study up. Hopefully nobody's minded like a huge somersault, but this actually yeah. was a, a way to encourage. And if for anything else, sometimes in my own life with all different kinds of disciplines that are difficult to grasp. So for instance, in my own world with finance, sometimes somebody will just say something to me and be like, don't do this thing or this yeah. thing is not going to work. And sometimes I just have to take that at face because I don't understand it its entirety yet. But with enough time, I'll understand, oh yeah, that was just, that was right on. That, yeah. that was good knowledge to know that I should just avoid that thing and come back to it and continue to research it. So yeah. don't take our word for it per se. Continue to go back into the scriptures, of course, and study what God has to say for himself. Um, but at the same time, we're, you and I are also standing on, as we just read in terms of the resources, the shoulders of those who have really waged significant yeah. blood, so to speak, and scholasticism over these philosophical concepts in conjunction with the scripture. So we're, yeah. we're standing on firm ground. But what you should probably do still is just call us and leave a voicemail. But anything yeah. we, we need, especially if you live outside the United States. Yes. Although it might be expensive. That might be why we don't have voicemails for them. I just oh, maybe. That. Yeah. If it's expensive, don't, don't do it. Unless you got don't something super it. important to say, then yeah, do it. Yeah. We'll what figure out a way number? for you. We'll figure out a way for you to leave us uh, some voice stuff. You can just record the audio and email it to us, I guess. Well, that's also true. Uh, the phone number is 607-444-2767. Bros. Bros. Two seven six seven. Well, I just want to say thank you, Tony, for being willing to broach this heavy topic with me on just short notice, you know, just a casual, chill conversation <laughs> yeah. about n- middle knowledge on e- the Lord's Day. I need to go actualize a world in which I'm taking a nap. <laughs>
Do you think that that, that, like the most that could work? Philosophically nerdy way to say that you want to take a nap. My favorite meme uh, that I've ever seen is it's a picture of William Lane Craig, and it says "possible world where William Lane Craig is correct about soteriology," and then at the bottom it just says "not actualized." <laughs> I love it because it's so beautifully, respectfully uh, snarky. It's just it is. It's everything that a meme is supposed to be. It is. That's yeah. actually a really good example. I, I feel like that's the proper way to close this whole thing down. It is. So um, leave us some voicemails, shoot us some emails. Uh, if you want to support the show, uh, you can either do that by sending us uh, something on PayPal, uh, reformbrotherhood at gmail.com, or you can go to patreon.com slash reformbrotherhood if you'd like to set up a recurring donation. Um, those funds go to help us cover some of our costs in terms of web hosting and microphones and things like that. Uh, but don't feel compelled. We just want to make good podcasts. So Jesse, bring us out. Well, Tony, until next time, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. Uh, what if I'm fine?